Gold Fever, Deadly Cold, and The Amazing True Adventures of Jack London in the Wild. In 1897, the California native went to the frozen north looking for gold, and what he found instead was a great American novel. This is a great article that I've been wanting to cover on the show. If you want to read the full article, go to smithsonianmag.com. But it's uh, pretty much about the Klondike Gold Rush of uh, 1897 uh, through 1898 that drew over 100,000 people away from their comfy homes on a spectacular adventure that pitted humans against nature, time, and even each other. And within that context of the time, we have a guy named Jack London, who really, really led an interesting life, as, as you'll see uh, uh, when I read the article. So here goes. Welcome to the Evan Weiss Show, broadcasting from the West Coast, raw, in-depth, and relentlessly hacking the mainframe. Here's Evan Weiss. But before I start, uh, the article is by Richard Grant. And so uh, in this article, he actually went to the Yukon Territory and, and, and did research on this article. And so it, it kind of takes place in that context. So here he goes. Through the window of a small plane, I look out over the vastness of the Yukon Territory, an area bigger than California with only 33,000 residents. It's an austere landscape of glaciated mountain ranges, frozen lakes, ice fields, and spruce forests. Then the mountains are behind us, and there are low hills, tundra to the horizons, and a big frozen river that's starting to melt. It was this stark wilderness that 100,000 prospectors tried to cross on foot and in homemade boats during the Klondike Gold Rush of the 1890s. The Stampeders, as they were known, were desperate to reach the gold fields around, the Dawson, uh, around Dawson City, but the journey took more than two months and was so punishing and dangerous that, that only 30,000 made it through. Can you believe that? Out of 100,000 prospectors who tried to get to this place called Dawson City, only 30,000 made it through. In the first wave, there was a tough and stocky 21-year-old from San Francisco named Jack London. Jack London was questing for gold, and what he found instead was the inspiration and material for one of the most successful literary careers of all time. His best-known Yukon book, The Call of the Wild, has been translated nearly uh, in 100 languages and will be released in February as a movie starring Harrison Ford as a Klondike gold prospector. Such is the enduring power of the story. A dog named Buck is kidnapped from California and thrust into the frozen wilds of the North. And by the way, this is the ninth time that the 1903 novel has been adapted for film or television. Imagine the success and the pull of the story. Now, the best story that Jack London never wrote, at least not in full, was the factual account of his time in the far north. But it can be pieced together from letters and diary entries and a handful of nonfiction articles that he sold to magazines, the remembrances of other people, and the guesswork from his fiction. And to this day, you could still see his old cabin and his old stomping grounds in Dawson City, the former capital of the Klondike Gold Rush, where my plane lands with a crunch on an unpaved runway. 
Obviously, this is uh, Richard Grant's airplane that just landed in Dawson City. So now we, we, we're going to get into the, the story of Jack London himself, who he was. There isn't too much about him personally, but in this article, uh, they were able to really, really uh, piece together from all his writings and his diary entries who he really was. And this is the most interesting part about it for me. Because he was only 21, it's easy to assume that Jack London was innocent and naive when he set out for the far north. But that wasn't the case. He grew up poor in a broken home, and at the, at the age of 15, he joined a gang of prison-hardened oyster pirates who risked their lives in small boats at night, trying to outwit armed guards who watched over the oyster beds in San Francisco Bay. <laughs> This guy was crazy. Jack soon became an expert sailor and an accomplished drinker and a brawler at the waterfront saloons. At 17, he sailed across the Pacific and up into the Bering Sea on a seal hunting ship. He also worked 16 hours a day in a Dickensian canning factory in Oakland. He hoboed from coast to coast on freight trains, learned to beg and steal, he also spent 30 days for vagrancy in a vicious New York jail. He also became, get this, a confirmed socialist by the age of 19. In July 1897, he had just quit his job at a laundry when the steamship, the steamship Portland docked in Seattle and the Excelsior in San Francisco. Miners came down gangplanks hefting three tons of gold from the far northwest Canada. Newspapers and telephones spread the word almost instantly and sparked one of the biggest, wildest, most delusional gold rushes in history. Experienced miners and prospectors were joined by great hordes of factory workers, store clerks, salesmen, bureaucrats, police officers, and other city dwellers, most of them completely inexperienced in the wilderness and clueless about the far north. So obviously Jack was desperate to join them, but he couldn't raise the money for a ticket or supplies. Fortunately, his six-year-old brother-in-law, James Cap Shepard, also became infected with clonditis, as the gold fever was known. Shepard mortgaged his wife's home to finance a trip, invited Jack along because of the young man's muscle and skill at roughing it. They bought fur-lined coats, caps, High heavy boots, thick mittens, tents, blankets, axes, mining gear, a metal cook stove, tools to build a boat and cabins, and a year's supply of food. Jack, a voracious reader with little schooling and a vague ambition to become a writer, threw in volumes of Milton and Darwin and a few other books. To reach the Klondike, they first needed to get themselves and all their supplies over the Alaskan coastal range on a trail too steep for horses or pack mules. They sent 3,000 pounds of supplies to the summit with packers at 22 cents per pound and carried the rest on their backs. Several sources state that Jack actually carried about a ton, which in those days was pretty average. A strong man who could pick up 100 pounds had to make 20 trips, walking a total of 40 miles in order to move that burden one mile. Wow. The going was rough and muddy, with patches of quagmire. They had to cross and recross raging rivers with fallen trees. 
They are very hard to walk on, with water rushing underneath and with 100 pounds on your back, said a, one of the prospectors in his diary. Men who fell were usually drowned by the weight of their packs. They were buried in shallow graves beside the trail. One of the prospectors was in so much pain from his arthritis that he had to say goodbye to the other men and turn back down the trail. The others pressed on through the heavy rain and deepening mud. They picked up an elderly gold seeker named Martin Tarwater, who offered to cook for them. Jack later fictionalized him, keeping the name Tarwater in a short story that's called Like Argus of the Ancient Times. Eventually, with blistering feet and raw shoulders, they reached Sheep Camp, which Thompson described as a very tough hole. More than 1,000 stampeders crowded together in a muddy tent city. It was the last piece of level ground before the dreaded ascent till Chilkoot Pass. If nothing else, this article and this story of Jack London really shed a light on the ambition of a person, a person's will to achieve their goals. Jack London really, really, really wanted to get gold. He, just like everybody else, they're really obsessed and they wanted a better life for themselves. They wanted to do this. They wanted to trek the far north and, and reach this gold. It's amazing. Many men looked up to the steepness of the trail, calculated how many trips it would take to turn back. Many of them wanted to dump the detestable burden of their supplies. Many tried to make the climb but lacked the strength and stamina. They collapsed in despair, or they grimaced at the pain from their back injuries. At least 70 were killed by landslides and avalanches. No one who lived through the Chilkut ever forgot it. Especially Jack London, who wrote about it with great vividness in several fictional accounts. The elation of reaching the top of the pass for the last time did not last long. Now, the men had to backpack all their supplies another 16 miles, then cut down trees and build a boat, cross a series of lakes, and run their supplies between the lakes, then travel 500 miles north on the Yukon River. So finally, going through all this heartache, all this hardship, going through disappointments and sleepless nights and struggling and and seeing their their associates if you will strewn across the river dead in shallow graves underneath the water they finally reached uh, this place which eventually was called Dawson City but it was called Dawson at the time so the article now goes into this place called Dawson City and what it was like and when people finally got there what were the kind of things that they would do Founded the previous year, Dawson now had more than a dozen saloons with dance halls and gambling and a street of prostitutes called Paradise Alley and some 5,000 inhabitants living in cabins, tents, and shanties. There was a food shortage, no sanitation, and the filthy streets were full of unemployed men and sled dogs. Wow, it sounds like an early Las Vegas. Interesting. Jack befriended two brothers, Lewis and Marshall Bond, 
who let him camp next to their cabin in Dawson. Their father was a wealthy judge with a ranch in Santa Clara, California. He would later appear lightly fictionalized as Judge Miller in The Call of the Wild. Jack also befriended Bond's brother's dog, a magnificent 140-pound St. Bernard Scotch Collie Mix. The dog's name was Jack, and he was the model for Buck, the canine hero of The Call of the Wild. Marshall Bond was struck by Jack London's unusual rapport with dogs. Rather than talk affectionately to them and pet them, he always spoke and acted towards the dog as if he recognized his noble qualities, but took them as a matter of course. Bond wrote in his memoirs, He had an appreciative and instant eye for fine traits and honored them in dog as he would in man. That is a statement of the obvious to anyone who has read The Call of the Wild in London's other great dog book, like White Fang. Jack stayed in Dawson for more than six weeks. Partly to keep warm, he spent a lot of time in bars and was often seen in conversations with the sourdoughs, or the seasoned miners. These characters thought that 40 below zero was good weather for hunting and dog sledding, and they scorned the newcomers, or what they called tenderfeet, who were liable to start whining after three days with no food. So you can see as Jack London spent time in saloons and bars and shady, sketchy areas with strange people that came from all over America, um, how this would kind of be a, a natural incubator for great and amazing stories. Dawson City today is a hardy, free-spirited, extremely remote community of 1,400 people. It's a place where oddballs, artists, and the First Nations Trondek and others can live at their own pace with a minimum of judgment. Even in an era where industrial-scale mining has been introduced to the region, independent gold miners are still digging in the nearby Klondike Valley, using excavators and diesel pumps as well as shovels and gold pans. Some of them are still finding significant amounts of gold and spending their money on whiskey, poker, and blackjack. The downtown streets are unpaved. You walk on raised wooden sidewalks, past frontier-style buildings, some dating back to the Gold Rush era. At the downtown hotel is a Jack London Grill and a saloon that serves a highly unusual cocktail, the Sore Toe, or Sour Toe, a severed mummified human toe dropped into the liquor of your choice. The legend is that the drink dates back to the 1920s and originally involved an amputated, frostbitten toe. These days, according to the bartender, the saloon accepts toes lost in other misfortunes, including lawnmower accidents. This place is obviously very strange. Imagine having a drink and having a human toe swimming in your drink. And, and the little remnants and particles swimming around in there. That's crazy. And back in the day, he was a frostbitten toe. That's even worse. He goes on to write in this article, I ordered mine with wild turkey and was served by a young man with a patch of green hair 
wearing a captain's hat. Opening a wooden chest, he retrieved a long, brown, shriveled toe from a jar of salt, dropped it into the shot of glass, warned of a 2,500 fine for chewing or swallowing, and then said, You can drink it fast or you can drink it slow, but your lips must touch the gnarly toe. Now that definitely is a unique, custom, boutique drink if I ever heard of one. Would you guys drink it? Email me and let me know. He goes on to say, when the deed was done, he presented me with a certificate suitable for framing. <laughs> I'd love to have a, uh, a certificate frame like that in my house. That would be really great. So in the article, it goes to say that someone there was in town working on a documentary about Jack London. And, and he goes on to say that she took me to an ancient dive bar called The Pit with dramatically sloping floors and a raunchy oil painting on the wall. The customers included gold miners, a professor, a dancer, and a musician. This uh, lady who was working on, uh, on the documentary told, told him that this is a land of characters then and now, and Jack mined them. He was fiercely intelligent and had a lot of confidence, but instead of trying to impress people, he looked and listened and felt. That's what made him a good writer. And I agree with that. I, I truly, truly agree with that. This guy seemed, Jack London, like he was a smart guy. He wanted to explore the world. He tried different things. And when he got to this place, he was so intrigued by the kind of characters that were drawn to this particular experience. Um... And, and I, think, I think he was just mesmerized by them. And that's what made him a great, great writer. The fact that he could sit down, listen to them, and feel where they're coming from. A lot of people who are intelligent uh, like to just boast or talk about how they know this or they know that. And I could see, uh, I've met a lot of people like that who are incredibly intelligent, but are quiet and observe, like to observe. And I would say that people have characterized me as that kind of person. When you know me personally, I'm more of the quiet kind of person. I like to observe. I like to understand. I like to feel where people are coming from. I'm a people watcher. I like to observe. I like to see why people do the things they do. And I think that's incredibly important. I could see that with, uh, with Jack London. So he goes on to say um, that this lady pulled out her iPad and she showed the, uh, the article, uh, the author of this article, copies of letters that Jack wrote to people in Dawson after he had left. And he goes on to say, to support the show, go to evanweiss.com forward slash NordVPN. Protect your browsing from criminals and surveillance. With NordVPN, all the data you send and receive online travels through an encrypted tunnel. This way, nobody can get their hands on your private information. Secure all your devices with Windows, Mac OS, Linux, Android, and iOS. Plus, you can protect up to six devices with a single NordVPN account. So go to evanweiss.com forward slash NordVPN to get an unheard of 70% discount. That he was requesting stories, details, flavor, and gossip. She also had a letter written by Father Judge, a Catholic priest, in which he describes falling through river ice and just managing to build a fire to save his life. 
Jack knew Father Judge and almost certainly borrowed the incident for his famous short story, To Build a Fire. In December, at the coldest, darkest time of the year, Jack left Dawson and snowshoed 80 miles up a frozen Yukon River, sleeping under blankets next to a fire. Weather records and Jack's recollection indicate temperatures close to 70 degrees below zero. Reaching the Stewart River, he joined his three partners in one of the log cabins they had found. It was 10 by 12, and even when the metal stove was red hot, meat would stay frozen on a shelf eight feet away. They lived on sourdough bread, beans, and bacon. Mm, that actually sounds really good right now. Supplemented by game meat, and they chopped water out of the river with an axe. Thawing the ground with fires, they dug for gold but found very little. They played a lot of cards and visited back and forth with men in other cabins. Jack's company was valued because he was an excellent conversationalist and storyteller with a cheerful, generous personality. Nearly all the men on the Stewart River that winter ended up in his fiction, and one of them, a broad-shouldered, big-hearted prospector named John Thorson, became John Thornton, Harrison Ford's character in The Call of the Wild. In 1965, literary sleuth Dick North, traveling by dog sled through the snow, found the derelict cabin where London spent his first and only winter in the area. He was able to identify it because Jack had signed and dated his name on the wall. Handwriting experts confirmed the signature as genuine. The cabin was then dismantled and its logs included in two replicas, one in Jack London Square in Oakland, California, and the other in Dawson City at 8th Avenue, where the poet Robert Service used to live. There's no exaggerating how primitive the cabin is or how cramped and smelly it must have been with four men living in it. They slept on spruce and animal hides. The floor was ice and snow. When they ran out of candles, they burned bacon grease in a homemade lamp, and Jack smoked incessantly. They all got scurvy, or what's called Arctic leprosy back then, from the lack of fresh vegetables and exercise. The disease killed many prospectors in the Klondike and put an end to Jack's brief career as a miner. At the time of Jack London's death in 1916, he was 40 and died of kidney disease exacerbated by alcoholism. Jack London was one of the most widely read authors in the world. Although the writer later was praised by such luminaries as George Orwell and George Louis Borges, his reputation went into decline after his death. The American literary elite dismissed him as a hack who produced popular novels about dogs and wolves. According to London's biographer, Earl Labor, these critics were both unfamiliar with the range of his work. He also wrote about philosophy, war, astral projections, politics, and many other subjects. 
many of these critics were misled by the tough, plain style that London pioneered in his writings. Even his popular classics are enriched with the multi-level meanings beneath the action-packed surface, Labour says. Jack was gifted with what Jung, that is Carl Jung, called primordial vision, which unconsciously connects the author to universal myths and archetypes. He has influenced countless other writers, including Ernest Hemingway, James Jones, and Susan Sontage. In recent decades, according to Labour, there has been an exponential outpouring of Jack London's scholarship geared towards reclaiming his reputation. His international status, both as an outstanding writer and as a major public figure. Labor adds, now he's finally achieving recognition in his own country as a major author for all literary seasons. So what I really get from Jack London is he was an adventurer. And in the back end somewhere, he wanted to be an author. He loved stories. He loved to have curiosity about the world and people and, and different situations. And it seems like he was subconsciously looking for this kind of situation to be in where he could write these amazing stories. He wanted to be a writer. He wanted to express himself uh, in, a, in a literary context, but he, he didn't have that, that story, that, that thing that really inspired him to really put pen to paper. And when he, in a way, unconsciously, you could say, or accidentally is a better word, um, went to the Yukon in search of gold and in my, my belief for adventure, he finally found the primordial material that he can use to create his beautiful, beautiful books. And it's an amazing, an amazing story. It's a great life. Too bad he, he died at such a young age. Um, you know, when you live that kind of life, especially with the drinking and who knows what other things happen, you definitely cut your life short. But, you know, it goes back to that saying, do you want to live a long life in a boring way? Or do you want to live a short life in an exciting, adventurous way? I know those are two options that a lot of people have to grapple with when they, when they envision their life, when they, when they move through the seasons in their life. I, I relate to Jack London, as I mentioned earlier, the idea of being an intelligent observer of people to understand how the world works and understand how people interface with each other. And out of that, get a deep understanding and go beyond that and put it, put pen to paper and express yourself and have other people relate to that and find a solace in knowing that other people feel or understand this certain plank of understanding of the world. And I also relate with his wanting to seek adventure and wanting to try different things and putting themselves, putting himself in different situations to see what happens. I personally have been in a lot of situations like that where I put myself in a situation that is completely outside of a situation that anyone would assume I would be in. But it is in those situations where you truly find a different aspect of yourself that you weren't even aware of. 
And I personally believe that that's what's called growing as a human being. And the sad part about that is that there are countless and countless of people who are so scared to live their lives, so scared to try something new, so scared to to do something that's so unfamiliar to them. And most people are like that. Most people are like that. It's a very, very sad thing. They're afraid of what others might think. They're afraid if, if they do a certain thing that people won't like them or people will be mean to them. And the reality is that those are all illusions. Illusions. You should definitely do and put yourself in situations that you never have before so you can learn more about yourself, the world, and the people you interact with. There's no other way. There's no other way to grow as a human being. You cannot live in a bubble, in a basement, and never, never, ever experience in the world and expect to grow, expect to be cultured, expect to know about the world, expect to make great decisions when you are put in a position where a decision could be could have a detrimental effect on your life. Imagine reading one book in your life and then asked to make a decision about something. Your ability to make a high quality decision is very low. The chances that you'll miss the mark are very high. Now imagine if you have read 10,000 books and you're asked to make that same decision. The quality of that decision is going to be incredibly, incredibly high. So I personally believe that learning and reading and experiencing the world is not a matter of leisure or comfort. It's a matter of whether you're going to live a high-quality life or a life that is going to be so sad and so complicated because you're unfamiliar with certain concepts and certain situations. And please email me on subjects that you want me to cover Articles, books, people, biographies. I appreciate the emails I receive. I receive hundreds and hundreds of emails, and I appreciate all of you guys. Thank you for listening to The Evan Weiss Show. Head over to iTunes to listen to previous shows. Questions? Email us at e at evanweiss.com.